I'm glad you're here this morning, and aren't you glad that Jesus is over everything? And that our song for eternity should be Jesus Christ is Lord. That just shouldn't be, shouldn't be our song for eternity. That should be our song here and now, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, this morning I'm going to begin a new series starting in the book of James. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be working our way through the book of James. I've entitled this series, A Faith That Works. And the title of today's message is Passing the Test of Life. Now, in seminary, I took a class specifically on the book of James. And that is how I fell in love with this book of the Bible. I had a German professor by the name of Dr. Schatzman. And for his test, you could not use the Bible. And in his test, he did not give you what the Scripture verse said. He would just reference the Scripture verse like James 1.8, what does that say and what does that mean? I had to memorize the book of James from chapter 1 to chapter 5, word for word. And that's how I fell in love with this book of James. It is my favorite book in the Bible. James was written by the half-brother of Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary. And James, the brother of Jesus, has an interesting story. He did not become a follower of Jesus until after the resurrection and as a result of the resurrection. And he wrote the book of James in the middle A.D. 40s to the, uh, in Jerusalem. He was martyred in A.D. 62. The Pharisees stoned him on the order of the high priest, Ananus ben Ananus. And interestingly enough, Martin Luther, the one who led the Protestant Reformation, he rejected the book of James. He said that the book of James had no place in Scripture. And the reason he said that is he said it has no substance. He said the book of James is what he referred to as a straw letter. And this was his contention with the book of James. His contention was the book of James really didn't mention Christ. Christ is only mentioned twice in the book of James, in James 1.1 and in James 2.1. And he believed that James contradicted the teachings of Paul about salvation and faith and works. Martin Luther interpreted James as saying works lead to faith in Christ when James wrote that faith without works is dead in James 2.17. And we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But he thought James was advocating a works-based salvation while Paul advocated a faith-based salvation. However, as we'll discover in a few weeks, uh, James is not saying that works lead to salvation. James is saying salvation should lead to works. And that's exactly what Paul said in Philippians 2.12 when he said that we are to work out our salvation with trembling and fear. You see, Martin Luther failed to understand the context of the book of James. And any times you read scripture, you have to read it in context. You have to understand the original audience to which it was intended. And James is writing to Christians about how they should live the Christian life. And Paul's emphasis was on how one gets into the Christian life. And the book of James is most likely a sermon that was put in the form of a letter. It has been called a literary masterpiece. The book of James is concise. It's straight to the point. James uses a lot of metaphors and a lot of illustrations He takes a lot of references from the Sermon on the Mount, which was Jesus' teachings in Matthew 5 through 7. And there are more imperatives 
There are more commands in the book of James than any other book in the Bible percentage-wise. James has 108 verses. In those 108 verses, there are 61 imperatives. 61 imperatives in 108 verses. And 3% of the words in the book of James are imperatives or commands. And that's why some have labeled the book of James as the bossiest book in the Bible. It is the most practical book on Christian living in Scripture. And James's desire is for every believer to have a faith that works by living out God's word in his or her life and just not hearing it. James is like a parent. James is like a coach. He instructs, but he also chastises, and then he encourages. And in this short letter, James covers a lot of ground. He covers a lot of topics. He talks about God being the source of all things and God being over all things. He talks about faithfulness in the light of God's coming judgment. He talks about suffering and the testing of life, which we're going to look at this morning. He talks about the law. He talks about wisdom. He talks about poverty and wealth. He talks about teaching and the tongue and speech. And he talks about faith and works, which is the premise of his book. And if you and I want to have a faith that works which should be the desire of everyone who has received Christ, then we must put into practice the teachings of James. Let me start by reading James 1.1, and I'm going to comment on that, and then we're going to get into the crux of the message in verses 2 through 12. James 1.1, James says, James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now James comes from the Greek word ikabos. Ichabos is the Hebrew equivalent of Jacob. And that, was, that name is given to him as a link to the nation of Israel. And there were seven Jameses in the New Testament. But it's strongly believed, and I wrote about a 20-page paper on the authorship of the book of James when I was in that class. If you want to read that paper, I still have it. I'll be glad for you to look at it and come to your own conclusion. But after all that research and after writing that paper... There is no doubt in my mind that James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the author of this book. James was also the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And James, his life is a great indication of what happens when someone gives their life to Christ. His life was changed dramatically because of the gospel. And James, he says, he's a servant of God. That word servant is the Greek word doulos. It's very important. It means slave or servant. And a doulos is one who has no rights at all because they've allocated all their rights to the one who owns him. It shows absolute loyalty and obedience to the master. And as a doulos, James was not born in that way. But James became a slave. He became a servant by putting his faith in Jesus. And you see, when we give our hearts to Christ, we become a doulos. We become a slave of God, a servant of God, because we are owned by God. And Scripture says our life is no longer our own because our life belongs to Him. And just like James now found his worth in God, when we give our life to God, we find our worth in Him. And we should demonstrate complete obedience and loyalty to Him. And for James to call himself a doulos, it demonstrated humility 
And James is saying that his worth is no longer in this world. But this, his worth is in the one who owns him. He's saying, God is my owner. God is the one who gives my life meaning and purpose. And then James says he's a slave or servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. By that statement of the Lord Jesus Christ, James is affirming the oneness and the absolute authority of God. Because Lord is the title given to Christ after the resurrection. And Jesus, Yeshua, which is the Hebrew word, means one who saves. Christ is the Messiah, is the anointed one. So James is making it very clear that his master is Jesus, the Messiah. And he fully believes that God has given him authority to fulfill his mission and to be ambassador on his behalf for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now to the audience, it says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Some translations may say scattered among the nations. That's referring to the scattering of the tribes that occurred in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 11. And the, Paul, when he was Saul, was part of the dispersion. He's, he was part of the reason that the Jews had to scatter. Because if you remember, Paul was the one who was a major persecutor of the church. And he was the one that caused all these Jews to scatter because of his and the persecution of others. So that word scattered is the word diaspora that you might see in other places in Scripture, referring to the great dispersion that took place of the 12 tribes because of the persecution they endured. And then he says, greetings. And that was common in many letters. And the Greek word there is kerosene. And it means to rejoice and to be glad. And what James is doing at the very beginning of his letter is he is encouraging his readers. He's providing comfort to these believers who have been dispersed, who have been suffering. And because of their dispersion and because of their suffering, they may have been attempted to doubt God. But he is assuring them of the genuineness of their faith, the genuineness of their salvation. He's telling them that they are not alone, that God is with them and that God cares for them. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, we are going to see that God is the source of all things. We're going to see that God is over everything, including the trials that we face in our lives. And if we want a faith that works, we need to overcome. We need to, over to pass the test of life. And through the passage I'm going to read and look at this morning, I'm going to share with you exactly how we can accomplish this task of passing and overcoming the trials and the adversity and the suffering that we may face. So let's read James 1, verses 2 through 12. James says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, but endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. An indecisive man is unstable in all his ways. The brother of humble circumstances should boast in his exaltation. But the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up in the grass. Its flower falls off. Its beautiful appearance is destroyed in the same way. 
The rich man will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is a man who endures trials because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that he has promised to those who love him. The first thing I want to share this morning is if we're going to pass the test of life, the first thing we must do, we must learn to grow in his likeness. We must learn to grow in his likeness. In verse 2, James says, Consider it a great joy whenever you experience various trials. This is another imperative. This is a command. And notice he says trials. He says test. He's not talking about temptations. There's a difference between trials and temptations. Trials and tests are external. That's what happens to us. And it's any difficulty in our lives that may threaten our faithfulness to God. And we usually don't have control over the trials that we face. Temptations are internal. Temptations are what begin with a thought and result in an action. We have control over those things. Temptations are what happens in us. And we're going to talk more about the temptations next week. But James says, have joy, count it joy, when you have various trials in your life. Now, having joy in our struggles and pain, it's not about feeling, but it's about how we think. It's about our perspective, because there are not many trials or many tests in our lives that cause us to smile. In school, I don't remember being excited about taking many tests. I really wasn't excited about taking Dr. Schatzman's test on the book of James. I loved the book of James, but that didn't mean I loved taking his test. And I remember in high school, it was in my junior year, I was taking honors chemistry. And the teacher put a test in front of us. She taught like a college professor. I was only a junior in high school. She gave us a test that had ten problems. No multiple choice, no true false. Just had to work out ten problems. And we all took one look at that test, and there was a collective sigh that went over the room. You could hear a pin drop. And one of my friends said what I think we were all thinking. He said, what the heck is this? Except he didn't say heck. And we wasn't thinking heck. But our teacher heard him, and she went off on the class, and she was so fired up. That test didn't excite me when I was studying for it. It didn't excite me when I got it. It didn't excite me during it. It surely didn't excite me after it. I don't remember how well I did, but I know it wasn't very well. But we don't get excited about many tests. You see, in life, we don't get excited about the trials we face. We don't get excited when someone we love passes away. We don't get excited when we get that diagnosis from the doctor or someone we love gets that diagnosis from the doctor. We don't get excited when we lose our job. We don't get excited when we don't make the team or we don't get that scholarship we were trying to get or we don't, don't get into the college that we want to get into. We don't get excited when we have problems in our marriage or in our relationships. We don't get excited when we have financial struggles and have to live paycheck to paycheck. But James makes it very clear. He doesn't say if you have trials. James says when you have trials. Because I promise you, life is going to hurt at some point. And James is not saying that we should simply say to ourselves or to others, consider it joy. Because it's not about putting on a happy face and acting like nothing is wrong. 
And we have a great example of this in John chapter 11. When Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, died and Jesus took several days to get there. But once he got there, Jesus comforted Mary and Martha. And then scripture says in John eleven thirty five 35, that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus wasn't excited about the fact that, that one of his best friends had passed away. So how do we experience joy when various trials come into our lives? What we need to understand is that the trials in and of themselves are not joyful. However... They are joyful when we realize that everything we face in life is under the authority of a sovereign God who is accomplishing his purpose in us and through us, through the difficulties that we face. Philippians 1.6, Paul wrote, And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Paul said, God is doing a good work within us. And sometimes that good work requires for our lives to get messy so God can accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Then in Romans 8, 28, Paul said this verse, I'm sure is very familiar to many of us. When we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Notice Paul said all things. He just didn't say God uses the good things in life he also uses the bad things in life to accomplish his purpose for those who love him i don't know if you i'm sure you've seen these artists that they start out on a canvas and it looks like a mess it looks like it's going to turn into nothing and that's where eric samuel tim who we had for elevate a few weeks ago for our students that's exactly how he paints he paints starting off it looks like absolutely nothing it looks like a mess But when that artist is through, it's a masterpiece. You know what? Sometimes God allows our lives to get messy so he can make us into the masterpiece that he desires. You see, we can have joy in the midst of our trials when we remember and believe that God is over everything. That God is over sickness. That God is over death. That God is over pain. That God is over our troubles and we need to remember there is nothing that God is not over. And God desires for us to embrace our trials not so much for what they are but for what God accomplishes through them. And the fact that the thing we face in life can cause us to become more like Christ should cause us to rejoice. It should cause us to respond positively to our trials. And in verses 3 and 4, James says, The testing of your faith produces endurance. And in the book of James, this is the ultimate purpose for our trials. The testing of our faith. That refers to the ancient process of smelting or refining gold, where gold would be purified in intense heat. And when gold is impurified in intense heat, those impurities rise to the top and are taken off and are removed. And the gold is more valuable after it goes through that process of intense heat than it was before. Why? Because the impurities were removed. And it's the same thing. Going through the refining process of life is God's way of bringing about a result. And what is that result? To purify our faith. To remove the things from our lives that are not pure so we can come more valuable before him. It's been said the worth of a soldier is never known in times of peace. 
You know when the worth of a soldier is known? When the battle begins and the war is on. You see, the times of testing are intended to produce a a wholeness of Christian character that could not be produced otherwise. The testing of our faith, it reveals the genuineness of our faith. You know how God can tell if your faith is genuine, how you respond to the trials of life. And in order for God to accomplish his intended result, James said we have to be willing to persevere We have to be willing to endure. And the Greek word for endure or persevere is hypomone. It's an active idea. It's the idea of bearing up under the load. It's the idea of being tenacious and not giving up. And God's goal for us is to mature in our faith and not give up. God's desire for us is to bear up under the load and to become like him by persevering and enduring in adversity. Because apart from the trials we face, we cannot grow in the likeness of Christ that God desires in our lives. And we need to understand that one day, every person is going to stand before God. And God's desire is to prepare us for that day. And sometimes he uses trials to do that. But unfortunately, we often don't think like this. I would say that most of our goals are completely different. Most of our goals are are worldly instead of spiritual. We want success. We think about that dream job. We want to save for retirement and do all these things. And then when trials come, if that's our only goals, we are devastated. But But if our goal is to know God, if our goal is to grow in His likeness, then we can take joy in our circumstances because we know the purpose of these trials is to move us forward toward the goal of becoming like him. You see, our goal should not be for God to fix our circumstances, but to allow God to fix us in the midst of our circumstances. Our goal should not be for God to fix our circumstances, but to allow God to fix us in our circumstances by making us more like Christ. And the more we allow God to work in us, the more we will know him and grow in him. And when God is our goal, we can rejoice in our trials because we know God uses them to perfect us and to purify and to strengthen our faith. And if we can learn to be faithful to him at all times by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author of our faith, the perfecter of our faith, we will be made complete and we will be made into the perfect image, the image of Christ. And I want to challenge you today, when you're faced with the trials of life, if you want to pass that test, respond to the trials with joy so you can grow in his likeness. The second thing I want to share is we must learn to gain his wisdom. If we want to pass the test of life, we must learn to gain his wisdom. And that's in verses 5 through 8. Verse 5, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. You see, it's only through God's wisdom that we can persevere and that we can grow in his likeness and that we can discern and carry out his will in the circumstances we face and know how to respond to the trials of life. However, James says, he says, if you lack wisdom, you are to ask for wisdom. James makes an incredible promise. He says, if we ask God, 
He says, God will give it to us. He says, the creator of the universe, the one who is over all things, the one who is omnipotent, the one who knows all things, the one who is omniscient, says, I will impart my wisdom to you. And James says he is willing to give it. He says he gives it generously. He gives it without hesitation. He gives it without reservation. He gives it without question and without grumbling and without complaining. He gives it without no second thoughts, with no questions asked. The key is all we have to do is ask. You see, God offers his wisdom, but we must be willing to receive it. And we must recognize that his knowledge and his wisdom is infinite and ours is finite. And it goes without saying that God knows a lot more than we do. But how often do we act as though if we know more than God does? Think about in your own life, how often have we refused to ask for advice? How often have we refused to ask for help? Or ask for wisdom, thinking we have it under control. Thinking we have it figured out. Thinking we know what we are doing. I remember when I was growing up, every summer we would travel to Iowa to see my grandparents on my dad's side. We always would stop in Illinois to visit my aunt and and cousins that we had there. And this was way before GPS and way before cell phones. And on one occasion, we got lost. It was getting dark. And it kept getting darker. And just like any man, instead of stopping and asking for directions, my dad decided he could figure it out on his own. We drove around for well over an hour. And multiple times, we came back to the same place where we started. And finally, my mom had enough. And I can see her to this day saying something to the effect, Kenneth, you stop this car right now and you go and ask for directions. You know what? My dad listened, finally. But we wasted all that time. He wasted all that gas trying to find his own way. And if he would have simply asked for direction, we would have been able to get where we were going without any problems. And you see, when we face the difficulties of life, the first thing we need to do, not the last, is ask God for wisdom and then trust his wisdom. You see, in doing so, we'll save ourselves a lot of trouble. We'll save ourselves a lot of heartache. And we won't waste valuable time. But you know what's going to happen if you don't ask God for wisdom and try to make it through the test of life and the trials of life on your own? You're not going to move forward in life. You're going to be stuck. It's going to lead to anxiety. It's going to lead to fear. It's going to lead to frustration and maybe even depression. And if we're going to please God with our lives and persevere, we must gain his wisdom by asking God for his wisdom. And when we ask God for his wisdom, we're saying, God, I need your help. We're saying, God, I can't do this alone. You're admitting your dependence upon God. And when James says, ask God for wisdom and he'll give it to you, James is referring to Matthew 7, 7 on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. And I believe the reason that we don't know how to respond to tests and trials in our lives, the reason we don't know what to do, the reason we panic, the reason we fail, the reason we get frustrated is because we do not ask God or we ask him in the wrong way. And instead of seeking God, instead of seeking his wisdom, we seek the world's wisdom. We follow our own wisdom. And as Dr. Phil would say, not that I'm a big fan of Dr. Phil, but he has this great saying, how's that working for you? 
How's that working for you, trying to follow your own wisdom, trying to figure out how to pass your own test in life? Instead of going to God the creator, God the sustainer, God who is the source of life, the God who is all-knowing, and asking him for his wisdom in those difficult times. And you see, when you ask God, James says you have to ask with the right attitude. He says you have to ask in confidence. He says you have to ask in faith. Verse verse 6, he says, But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. James says if you ask God for wisdom, you can't do it with doubt. You can't ask God for wisdom one day and then turn to the world and ask for wisdom the next day. Because that shows a lack of trust in God. That shows a lack in faith in God. And doubt draws us away from God. And James says, if you come to God with doubt, guess what? You should not expect to receive anything from him. Verse 7, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord if he asks in doubt. You see, doubt causes our trials to turn into temptation. Because if you doubt God in the times of testing, it can cause you to be tempted to look for your own solution instead of seeking God's solution. And James says, if you doubt, he says, you are double-minded. He says, you are unstable in all your ways. If you say you believe in God and you say you trust in God and then you doubt God, he's saying you have divided loyalties. And some have called this spiritual schizophrenia. Because your allegiance to God is not absolute. And you're living a life that contradicts your beliefs and your claim of God. And instead of seeking God inconsistently and without sincerity, James is encouraging us and challenging us to seek God with consistency, to seek God with sincerity. And we need to realize there's a direct correlation between being double-minded and persevering. Because someone who does not persevere or endure is going to doubt God. And they're going to become divided in their allegiance to God. And we can't say we trust God if we doubt God. Our lives are to be defined by trust and not doubt. And we must have a consistent faith. We must have an unwavering faith. We must have a faith that is not fixed on our circumstances which change. But we must have a faith that is fixed on Christ who does not change. And we have to pursue God with all our heart, not half of our heart, not with a divided heart, believing that God will do what he says. So as you go through the trials of life, and if you want to pass the test of life, ask God for his wisdom and then follow it. The third thing I want to say so if we want to pass the trials of life, we must learn to grasp our identity. Verses 9 through 11, he speaks of, of two brothers. He speaks of a poor brother and a rich brother. And both of these gentlemen he's speaking of, both of them are Christians. They just have different circumstances. In verse 9, he says, The brother of humble circumstances should boast in his exaltation. Then in verse 10, the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. We need to understand the context in which James is writing. He's writing to Christians whose lives have been uprooted, who were forced to leave Jerusalem, 
They've been facing tough financial situations. They've had a hard time adjusting. And maybe many of them have even been ostracized. And according to the standards of the world, many of them were poor. And James says they are to take pride in their high position in Christ and not in their position in the world. He's saying they must look beyond how the world sees them and see themselves as God sees them. And as Christians, we have much more going for ourselves than those who are rich in the world. And we need to hold on to, and we need to grasp our identity in Christ. You see, we are, to, we are not to focus on our hardships. We are not to focus on our suffering. We are not to focus on what we do not have. Instead, we are to focus on who we are in Christ. And James says we are to boast about who we are in Christ. We are to boast about being part of God's family. We are to boast about who God has made us to be. We are to boast about being heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. We are to boast about having a rich status as a child of God, recognizing that everything that Jesus has will one day be ours. See, we're to boast in the fact that, that our circumstances are actually leading us to trust in Christ and to become like Christ. And if you have nothing else, but you have Christ, as we sang this morning, you have all you need. My favorite math equation is this. Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. Jesus Christ plus nothing equals everything. So James is encouraging those who don't think they have much in this world not to focus on what they do not have, but focus on what they have and who they are in Christ. And James wants us to do the same thing. God doesn't want us to focus on what we don't have in this world because all that's temporary. All that's going to go away one day. But James says we are to focus on who we, have, who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. And we're to store up our treasures in heaven. And then in verse 10, James turns his attention to the rich brother. He's referring to a believer who is wealthy. And he's warning them. He's saying, don't trust in your wealth. He's saying one who is rich must take pride not in his money, not in his social status, but in his humble status as a person who identifies with the one who was despised, the one who was rejected, Jesus Christ himself. For the wealthy... Trials are to remind them that wealth can't solve their problems. Wealth can't cover up their pain. And we need to remember that wealth can't solve our problems either. Material possessions can't cover up our pain. There's only one solution to our pain and to our problems. And that is Jesus Christ himself. Only Jesus can solve our problems. Only Jesus can take care of our pain. In the church I grew up in, there was a saying that Jesus Christ is the real answer to all our problems. And I would say Jesus Christ is the real answer to all our problems. I would also say Jesus Christ is the only answer to all our problems. You see, our wealth and our status in this life are temporal. In James verses 10 through, 10 through 11, he says they're going to pass away like the flower of the field in verse 11 for the sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up the grass it flower falls off and its beautiful appearance is destroyed in the same way the rich man will wither away while pursuing his activities 
You see, it's not what you possess that matters in life. What matters is who you possess. And I think of the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. Jesus said this in answer to the, to the crowd. He said this in verse 15. He said, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus said, it doesn't matter how much you accumulate here. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I'll do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and store all my grain and goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. God said to him, you fool. This night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, in the face of death, wealth is meaningless. Wealth has no value. Wealth ceases to exist. And the only thing that's going to last, the only thing you're going to take from this life to the next life is your relationship with God. And if you don't take note of the real purpose in life, to honor God in all that you do and all that you go through, as, Jesus, as God told the, the man who built all these barns and told him tonight your soul is going to be required of you, you may cease to exist in the middle of your pursuits, meaning that you may be so obsessed with wealth, you may be so obsessed with power, you may be so obsessed with social status that it consumes your life and spiritually you will become dead and if you pursue wealth you're going to be consumed by wealth but if you pursue Christ you're going to be consumed by Christ your wealth is not in your possessions your wealth is not in your power your wealth is not in your popularity your worth and your ultimate significance is in Jesus Christ himself and whether you are rich or poor you're going to face the trials of life and when those trials come, don't pay attention to how the world views you. Don't evaluate yourself by material or worldly standards. Instead, grasp your identity in Christ and take, take pride in who you are in Christ and boast in Christ. And this will go a long way when we grab hold our spiritual identity, when we grasp who we are in Christ. This will go a long way in passing the test of life. The last thing I want to share is we're going to pass the test of life. We must learn to garner his reward. Verse 12, he said, Blessed is a man who endures trials, because when he passes the test, he'll receive the crown of life that he has promised to those who love him. I use the word garner because it means to acquire. It means to earn. You see, those who endure the trials of life, James says, are blessed. That word blessed comes from the Greek word makarios. It means happy. It means contented. It's the same word that Jesus used in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, Blessed are those, for example, who mourn, for they will be comforted. So how can we be blessed if we endure testing? Because when we pass the test that God puts in front of us, we will garner, we will acquire, we will receive a reward. 
and the reward we receive for persevering and overcoming the test of life, James says, is the crown of life. And in the Greek, it actually means the crown which is life. And here the word for crown is, is the word stephanos. It's a crown in terms of a laurel wreath. It was given to those who participated in athletic events. And they completed the event. They were given a laurel wreath. It was nice for a day, but it withered. It became a good keepsake, but nothing more. But you see, the reward that God promises us if we endure the trials of life is not one that withers. It's not one that's just a keepsake. The reward we receive is eternal The reward we receive for loving God and persevering in the face of adversity is life itself. It's life eternal in Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.25. Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Paul said this. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. However, they do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable one. And then in Revelation 2.10, John says this. He says, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. You know what happens when we're faithful to God in the trials of life and when we're faithful unto death? We receive the crown of life, the crown which is life, abundant life, and eternal life. So when you go through trials, consider it joy. So you will receive the reward that God has promised. And James says he'll give the reward to those endure and to those who love him. You know a sign, you know what a sign is that you love God? is that your love for him is not based on your circumstances, but your love for him is based on what Christ did for you. Your love for God is determined in how you respond to the trials of life that he puts in front of you. And James says, blessed are those who persevere in those trials, and yours will be abundant life and eternal life to those who love God. How you respond to the trials of life shows the genuineness of your faith and shows how real your love for God is. Don't base your love for God on what happens in your life. Base your love for God on what he did for you on the cross. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. I love the New Living Translation interpretation of this verse. Paul wrote, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. And what he's saying is we need to remember that the trials of this life are only temporal. They don't last long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. What's that that lasts forever? It's eternal life in Jesus Christ. So as you go through trials, remember the promise of God that he's going to give you a reward. And look forward to the reward you're going to receive that's going to last forever. You see, our faith is not what matters most. What matters most is how we live out our faith. And this is the premise. This 
is what the book of James is all about, about how we live out our faith. And I love what Tony Evans said. He said, there's only one sure way you can know whether you really believe what you think you believe, say you believe and ought to believe. Let God put your faith to the test. And he says, don't worry, he will. And then he says, a product that has never been tested to see if it can do what it claims it can do isn't worth a whole lot. And it's the same with our faith. Make no mistake about it. Regardless of who you are, Whether or not you're rich or poor, your faith is going to be tested. You're going to face adversity. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And when our faith is tested, it is going to reveal what we really believe. And if you want to have a faith that works, if you want to have a faith that is genuine and real, we must pass the test of life. And to pass the test of life, we have to learn to grow in his likeness and allow God to use the trials that we face to become more like him. We need to gain his wisdom. We need to grasp our identity. And we need to garner his reward. And I want to encourage you to heed the advice of the songwriter when he wrote these words. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As you face the trials of this life, what are you turning to this morning? And how are you responding to the difficulties you face? Let's pray. Father, we just come before you right now and we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And Father, I'm just so thankful that you through your Holy Spirit, let James to pen these words. And Father, they're so applicable to our lives. Because Father, no matter who we are, we are going to face tests in our lives. We're going to face adversity. We're going to have struggles. But God, James lays it out for us and how we can overcome these struggles and how we can pass these tests. And Father, I pray that, that we who are here this morning who have received you, God, I pray that we would understand, Father, that you use those tests that we face for a purpose and for a reason. And God, is to, is to show that our faith is genuine, is to purify our faith, is to strengthen us, is for us to show that our, faith is, that our faith is real and we truly do love you. And Father, I don't know what everyone here this morning is going through or what trials they might be facing. But Father, I pray they would count it joy understanding how you might use what they're going through so they can become more like you, Father. Lord, I pray they would seek your wisdom. God, I pray that they would understand who they are in Christ and that their focus would be on you and what you've done for them and not their circumstances. And then, Father, I pray that we would all understand that you have promised a reward to each one of us who endures and perseveres through the trials of life. God, you promised the reward of eternal life and abundant life. And Father, I pray if those are those here this morning who need to come to this altar, God, and, and Father, maybe they're going through some tough things. Maybe they need to seek your wisdom. 
Father, maybe their focus has been in the wrong place. Maybe they focused on their circumstances instead of focusing on you. And Father, maybe they focused on you fixing them their circumstances instead of them fix instead of you fixing them. And Father, if people need to come to this altar this morning, just pour out their hearts to you. I pray they would do that. And Father, maybe there's someone here this morning who doesn't know you. They've never given their life to you. Father, help them to understand that when they have these difficulties in life, they're going to have to face them alone because they don't know you. And Father, if they want you to walk with them through the tough times of life, Father, they need to come to their point as James did and realize who you are and what you've done for them and and give their life to you and become your servant and become your slave and turn their life over to you. If there's someone here this morning who needs to do that, Father, I pray they would make that decision to receive Jesus. And Father, maybe others this morning need to follow you in baptism or or you've led them to become members of our church or or maybe you're calling them to full-time ministry or full-time missions. Whatever decision people need to make this morning, Father, I pray they would make it and respond in obedience. But God, we thank you for this time that we've had in your presence. We thank you for your love for us. And Father, we thank you for all you've done for us. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. If you're here this morning, and as I prayed, if you want to receive Jesus, you don't know Christ. We'd love to share with you how you can know Christ. Or maybe God has spoken to you about the trials you're facing. Maybe something that's said this morning, God has placed on your heart. That you need to come to this altar and just... And just seek him and pray out and and call out to him. If you need to talk to me, I'll be down here this morning and I'd love to talk to you and pray with you. But why don't we stand and come as God.